Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. All right, welcome everybody back to another episode here of State of Sport Management. Um, we've had a little bit of lull here of going on with recordings and unsurprising for a lot of you, we've been making, <laughs> I think we're all going through these hoops and learning to kind of re-educate students all at the same time during this fall semester. So I've been trying to make sure to give people plenty of time to get stuff on their schedule, discuss, look at topics, ideas, and make sure that everyone um, and no one's going to have any restrictions or feel obligated or pressure within their schedule, especially now um, with doing this recording here, getting close to the mid-November. I know everyone's getting really busy with classes and final projects and stuff, but I think this is a really important topic that I want to get to. And so I brought in a big gun here, um, maybe the biggest gun. I'll let her, <laughs> he'll, her dish out with the other big guns I brought in, but I want to talk a lot about the mentor-mentee relationship within our field. Um, and today we're probably even going to go beyond the sport management, but also within the mentor-mentee role within higher education. And to have that conversation, I brought in Dr. Nefertiti Walker from UMass. She's got a whole slew of titles, but really important ones here we have. She's an associate dean for an inclusive organization within the Eisenberg School of Management. She's also the interim associate chancellor to, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then while she's doing all that, she's also just, you know, just a lowly associate professor within the, in the <laughs> program as well. So Dr. Walker, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate kind of you lending some of your knowledge on this topic. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And I will um, really quickly, so I'm no longer associate dean at Eisenberg. And oh, okay. the, you would, I mean, you would have that information because that changed as of last spring. So now I'm just currently the um, interim vice chancellor for diversity, equity, and inclusion and chief diversity officer. Yeah, just as the key, the key and word faculty still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So um, kind of going back, I want to start this off with your perspective and maybe lessons learned as a doc student. So you did your PhD program at the University of Florida. So kind of walk us through thinking about maybe even those early years or first year as a doc student and your experiences maybe as a mentee within that doctoral program. Yeah, so, you know, I'll start by saying I chose University of Florida because um, Mike Sagas. So Dr. Mike Sagas was leaving Texas A&M at the time. He was um, going to be coming to University of Florida that summer. I love some of the research he was doing, um, just looking him up online, what little of him you could find online at that time. I thought it would be a really cool person to mentor me, and I know I wanted to, if I could help it, stay close to Atlanta. So University of Florida was perfect. So that's how I ended up there. Um, once I got there, it's interesting because as I was thinking about this mentor-mentee relationship, outside of, so I had a few mentors while at Florida, but I feel like some of my most significant mentors were people that were also my peers, which is interesting and I'm not sure how often people talk about the mentor-mentee relationship with people that are your peers and how you can do peer mentoring. So, you know, I think mentor-mentee relationships come in all forms. And I, I would say, before I even get into some of the folks that really shaped my learnings at Florida, I would say that being open to various types and forms um, and levels of, of 
mentoring relationships is really important because if I wasn't open to that, I would have had a completely different experience at Florida. Um, so of course, you know, my mentor was my advisor, Mike Sagas, who was fantastic. Um, in some ways he was perfect for me. Um, I like to get feedback that's just straightforward. Just tell me what I did wrong. Um, give it to me quick. Um, and then let's move on. And that's how he is. Neither one of us hold on to the negative aspects of papers. Um, you and I were talking before you started recording and I'm like, I can't remember the bad aspects of feedback even because, you know, I think being a shooter um, and playing basketball, you quickly, you forget the bad stuff quickly. If you sort of hold on to the shots that you missed, it's going to be very difficult to make the next shot. So I think I've taken that into um, my mentor-mentee relationships in that he would give me feedback like, oh, in my Sega's voice, Nav, what are you talking about here? What is this? This doesn't, this doesn't even make sense. What are you trying to do? And, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I don't know what I'm trying to do, right? Like, I, I would be honest. I would be fr He would be frank with me, and I would be very frank with him. And that worked really well for us because both of us needed that. He needed someone that he could work with who he could just shoot it to it straight, shoot it to them straight. And I needed someone that wasn't going to – um, try to talk around the problems and the issues and that would just give it to me straight. So, you know, we, <laughs> our relationship is interesting because we didn't meet often um, and we didn't have very long meetings, but it was, it was what we both needed. I mean, he would, we would sit down to talk about a paper. He would give me really quick feedback. I would ask a few questions. Then we'd go about our ways and go do the work. Um, I would say another relationship that I had that was really important to me is Trevor Bopp. So when I was at the University of Florida, Trevor Bopp was actually um, my office mate um, oh, for okay. most of my time there. Um, so he was a doc student as well. He came from Texas A&M and transferred into the PhD program at Florida with Sagus. Um, so he was only, you know, a year, maybe a year and a half ahead of me in the program, but he knew so much more than I did. Um, I got an MBA, so I didn't know the difference between qualitative and quantitative research until my first semester of my PhD program. Like, no clue, no idea, hadn't even heard the terms before. Um, so I, did, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And having Trevor as a, a colleague and a peer and an office mate, but also as a mentor was really important. I remember one day, um, probably a month or so into my first year, first semester of the PhD program, I was reading an article and, you know, Trevor leaves, he comes back, I'm still reading another article. You know, he, he goes and eats lunch, works out, comes back and he's like, now if you're still reading the same article, you've read two <laughs> articles in about five hours. And I'm like, yeah, they're, you know, they're heavy stuff. I'm trying to read it all. And he's like, walk me through your process. And essentially, I ended up telling him that I was reading the articles word for word. And he's like, no, 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 no. That is not how you are going to get through your first semester of a PhD, um, reading every single article for every single seminar class word for word. So he sat me down and he taught me how to quickly read through articles um, and, you know, essentially changed my whole world. I mean, I was probably spending 80, 90 hours a week just reading through articles for these seminars. Um, so I was working nonstop 12, 14 hours a day on coursework. And he's like, you're not going to last. Um, so he was a significant part of my um, mentoring 
through my PhD process and he was my colleague. He was my peer. We were in it together in a lot of ways. He also helped me understand um, how to work with Dr. Sagas early on. So that first semester, he's like, oh, this is what he means, right? He did some interpreting of Sagas mm. and what he was asking of me, which again, just sped up the process for me as opposed to fumbling through that first semester of working with your advisor. Um, we were able to connect really quickly because of Trevor Bob. So, you know, Dr. Bob was a huge part of my PhD mentoring process. Um, I think some other folks that may not have known it, but were silent mentors to me. And this is another concept that I'm not sure how much we talk about. And, and maybe there's another name for it and, and it's not mentorship, but I didn't know um, Janet Fink at the time. I didn't know um, George Cunningham at the time but I liked their work a lot. Um, and I was being fed a lot of their work probably because I was in um, Sagas's seminar class, so sports sociology seminar. So I was reading their work and I just loved how they formatted their papers. So I began to essentially look, as, look to them as um, scholar type academic mentors, um, certainly publishing mentors and started to imitate the way that they were writing um, in the way that they're stru they structure their papers and the early work that I was doing. Um, so again, they had no idea, but they, <laughs> they were sort of these silent mentors to me. And then I think um, two more mentors that I had early on in my process, one was Kiki Caplanito. Um, so Dr. Caplanito, who's also a faculty member at University of Florida now, um, she was a mentor because she just worked so incredibly hard. Um, her work ethic, ethic was something that I absolutely admired. And um, and she was also super productive. So I was like, hey, you know, if I if I can work like her um, and focus on my my publications and my writing the way that she does, then I'll know that I'll be successful because she's been successful. So I sort of tried to imitate her as well. And then lastly is um, Dr. John Singer. Um, you know, Singer was I I went to my first conference and I saw the way he was able to be so authentic um, and who he was um, and in his presentations. And that allowed me to know that I could be who I needed, who I was, right? So when he gave presentations, he wasn't trying to um, imitate, um, you know, a traditional, um, I would say, uh, probably coming from, from an affluent family, um, white person presenting, right? Like he presented like someone who grew up in black culture and who played basketball and who loved Kobe, right? And for me, that was that was really affirming because I thought that I would have to assimilate and leave those parts of my culture out of my academic work. So when I saw him doing that, I was like, oh, I can talk about basketball and and um, behave the way I want to behave and still do academic work and fit into this, this academic conference. Okay, I can do this. Um, so he was certainly a mentor to me, um, you know, then and still is now. Yeah. And going, like going back to some of the things you mentioned, and this is, this could be a tangent, but you're talking about straight shooter from Dr. Sagas. I've always wondered if our sport management field is maybe, I don't want to say better equipped, more equipped, or maybe experience wise of, I think I run to a lot of people, especially former athletes, which again, we're going to probably have a stronger correlation with sport management folks within that category of yeah. wanting to stuff more straight than potentially other fields. I mean, do you feel that way or do you think that maybe connects with you in a different way? No, I feel, I think that's probably true. Um, and I, I think you're right in that it's probably because there are so many folks in sport management who did 
um, play as you know sports athletics at some at some level whether it's high school middle school rec ball um, or the collegiate level and I think if you play um, sports in general but particularly at the high school or collegiate or professional level then you've had coaches who uh, coaches aren't going to necessarily talk around the subject they need yeah. you to be somewhere on the court or the field they're just going to tell you to get there um, they're not going to try and say it nicely they don't have the time you're in the middle of games <laughs> and I think you know Sagas's background is you know he played college baseball as well so I think him having that sports background me having that sports athletics playing at the collegiate level both of us background we we could talk to each other very well we knew where we were coming from um so yeah i think you're right in that having played and been um a, having sports been a big part of your life certainly impacts how you want to communicate and another thing you mentioned is that sound mentors i really like that idea um I don't know how I'd characterize it, but there are definitely people in our field that I've never worked with. And either by topic wise, I may, there's probably a decent chance I never will, but either like, for example, I remember when I was a doc student, I got told constantly, like my writing needs to consistently improve. So I asked around and I asked people who they thought the best writers in the field were. And then I just started reading their papers and it wasn't yeah. even for content. I just wanted to really consume what someone felt like was one of the best writers in the field to see if there's some way or form or process I can pick up that I can use to help create better writing on my end. Um, and yeah. So connect with that. Yeah. And I think, you know, even presentations, right. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever told um, John Singer that he's a mentor of mine, which is why I call him a silent mentor, but he is because, you know, beyond his writing, his, style of presentation, his authenticity and the way that he carries himself as a professional in our field was something that I looked up to. So yeah, I think that's think it's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I did laugh about you saying read whole articles. I definitely connect with that as a like thinking back first year, just like, well, I really don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just gonna throw <laughs> yeah. as much time at this thing and just read every word, even though this whole section, I have no idea what they're even trying to tell me, even though I've read yeah. it now for the fifth time, I can understand a second or third year coming in, like, what are you doing? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I mean, it was, it was not sustainable what I was doing. Um, again, 14, 15, 16 hour weeks of just reading articles. And Trevor's like, yeah, this isn't going to work now. Let, let me, let me help you out. Um, and I'm thankful to him for that because now the first thing I do with every PhD seminar that I teach is um, even my grad students that are master students and have, you know, they would never, ever go into a doc program. We still spend the first class before they do any readings of walking them through how to speed read academic work mm. um, because it was just so incredibly impactful on um, my PhD process. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I was thinking back, I don't have it anywhere on paper, but when you were at Florida, that had to be a pretty loaded faculty. I, I have kind of some faint memories of when I was starting or a year before looking back and seeing the Florida sport management faculty. I know some of them have kind of gone on to different mm -hmm. jobs, but that also probably had to be pretty impactful on your doctoral experience. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm hesitant to begin naming names, because I know I'll forget someone, but um, James Zhang, for instance, was there then. Um, uh, Young Jay Ko was also a faculty member there. Um, we had Matt Walker 
was a faculty member there for a while. Like, yeah, I, again, I know I'm forgetting people and I feel terrible about that, but um, we had a really stacked team, um, if we want to call it that at Florida, which certainly, and they were super productive, right? So I think their level of productivity, they were all either assistants about to go up for associate in promotion in full, or they were associates, you know, pushing towards full, but they were all incredibly productive and focused, um, which certainly impacted all of us and how we, we viewed, how we approached the work. And so kind of taken from that, I mean, was there any, you talked a lot about Dr. Sagas potentially within that um, pure mentee mentor experience, but was there other things that you noticed that maybe did well, things that didn't do so well, um, or other experiences like that that you feel like molded you from a mentee experience or you kind of put in the back of your mind of what you might do later on when you turned in, when the, the roles flipped? Um, hmm. I think, so if I think about, and this, this might be taking this in a whole different direction, um, but I know part of the way that we were mentored um, at Florida was to get a lot of publications out, right? Um, and I think that was sort of the era that we were living in, in the sport management world in general. It was a numbers game and you need to get, you know, quality is important, but quantity, people are going to go down your CV and they're going to count your publications and that's how you're going to move ahead, whether that's getting the job that you want or getting promoted um, and tenure. Um, and I think I certainly bit onto that early on, right? So I was, you know, and I think that was influenced by the people that were at Florida then. They were doing a lot of work with a lot of different people. Um, and I, I started to imitate that, doing a lot of work with a lot of different people, um, even if it wasn't necessarily narrowly within my, my area of research. Um, and there was this constant anxiety over having enough publications um, to, to get, one, a job when I was a doc student, and then beyond that, um, promotion and tenure. Um, and then there was this point where I just completely switched, you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with my mentoring, the mentoring that I've received here at UMass. But there was a point where I just switched um, or flipped the switch a little bit and said, you know, I, that's not who I really am. Um, I like to go really deep in a very narrow area. I am, I have a passion for a small corner of the work. Um, why am I spreading myself so thin? Um, and I was spreading myself so thin because I was trying to live up to um, a lot of the mentoring that I got at Florida, um, whether that was peer mentoring from my colleagues that I was going through the program with or whether that was mentoring from the faculty there. There were certainly pressures, external pressures um, to produce a lot of research um, and to be open to all the people that want to work with you and to say yes. Um, and I'm just to be completely transparent. I'm just starting to shake that. Um, behavior. I'm just starting to, you know, say no to projects that are really exciting, um, going to probably be really impactful, but are adjacent to my main area of research. Um, and that takes, for me, that takes a lot because I was yeah. trained and mentored to jump on everything. If they want you, then you should be there. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that's, and I've tried to do that at least with the students that, the doc students that I work with here at UMass is I've tried to um, paint the narrative of there's a couple of different ways to go about being a faculty member and being productive. And productive doesn't necessarily mean you're publishing a ton of articles all over the place. Productive for you can mean that you're doing um, a few really impactful or just a few really interesting 
um, publications, but also explaining to them that does impact where you might land because all of our departments, I feel like have very different cultures. Um, so I know here at UMass, we value good, we value what we perceive as good work. Um, you know, we value impact journals. I mean, we value people that have sort of carved out a niche and become a, a, some level of expert in an area. We don't, we spend far less time counting. Like no one in our, you know, department is saying how many pubs they have or how many they got this year. Like it's just, we just don't have that culture. So that's been helpful too. I do think as much as I try to tell people to do the work that they're passionate about and carve out their own lane, I understand that there are external pressures to get a job. And depending on where you get your job, those cultures have different expectations. Yeah. And it's, <clears throat> I definitely understand what you mean because when I think my second year in the people ahead of me, there was an opening at a pretty good job. And we had heard from a lot of people right away that, Oh, they're not looking to interview anyone that doesn't have X amount of publications. Oh, wow. And yeah. And now yeah. I've talked to people after the fact, and there's been some doubt whether that was true or not, but the idea that that churn and that conversation ends up spreading and even though I wasn't in a position to even be applying for that job because I was only in year two, it just became, it's okay, maybe if I'm going to be expecting to get a job that's X quality, that means that's a number I'm going to, to have to shoot for. And it does create yeah. that potential pressure and it does kind of lead to some conflict on whether you want to do quality work or more focus on quantity and type things. So I can definitely connect with that push-pull that happens on a lot of doc programs and whether that's good thing, bad thing, or we need to be looking at things completely different. Yeah, and I think, you know, for instance, if I got my PhD here, I would have approached my work differently very a, a lot sooner. Um, because again, I think you're, the mentor relationships that you develop with people absolutely influence how you do your work. Um, and I know it, I mean, it, at least yeah, it has with sure. me. Yeah. Um, what about, I know we talked a little bit about Dr. Singer and what he provides you potentially as a silent mentor. Is there other experiences with faculty maybe that even have more, I don't want to use the word active because that implies something else, but it's just, is there other mentors maybe outside your PhD program when you were a doc student that you really took a lot from during that time? Uh, you know, I think I mentioned Singer. Um, he was outside of our program. Honestly, probably not outside. And I'm, I'm, I hate it if I'm forgetting someone. No, actually, I take that back. So Laura Burton, um, I, I think it might have been my second um, NASM where we, they do the mentoring PhD faculty member yeah. matching thing. And I, I matched up with Laura, which I was excited about because that's who I wanted to be matched up with. Um, and we had a really good conversation about research. But beyond that, she just sort of stayed in my life as a mentor beyond, beyond that point. Um, and we stayed connected. Um, we haven't published any work together, although we've worked on projects together. But I think just having someone um, who can relate to some of the experiences that you're having, relate to the research that you're doing, um, and be able to bounce ideas off of them was really nice. I think, and I can't remember when my relationship with um, Jenny McGarry began, but Jenny and I, I think, have grown closer over the years to where now we have a really close relationship. And most things, you know, whether it's a, an administrative position that I'm considering um, or whether it's research, I tend to reach out to Jenny to get her thoughts on it. Um, so I feel like I developed 
relationships, mentoring relationships with folks outside of my um, PhD, I guess, cohort department at Florida once I finished at Florida. While I was there, I was really insular in my approach to um, mentorship, um, but also my work in general. And, and maybe that was just because we had such a big cohort of students. It was very easy to get lost in our day-to-day -day conversations and work. Um, but certainly once I left Florida, I began to develop really good and strong mentoring relationships with folks um, here at UMass and even beyond. And I'm glad you brought up that. Um, yeah, I forgot what it's called, like the student luncheon, yeah. student faculty luncheon, but it ends up being a great thing. I remember when I was a student, it is kind of tricky to figure out how to introduce yourself to faculty that are not in your program. And yeah. Maybe you don't even like, hey, I've never published before, but I think your stuff is fantastic or whatever yeah. you're trying to think about what to say. But that luncheon does make things easier. I remember having lunch with Carrie LaCrum at VCU, Heidi Grappendorf. Yeah. Um, I even had lunch with Dr. Burden, too. That was kind of just a great little introduction of not having to feel that pressure. Um, so kind of now flipping. So you... You graduate, you move on, and you're now at UMass and you have a doc program, and now you're kind of flipping the script almost to a sense of, of having that traditional role. Like, even thinking about the first steps of even choosing a doc student or kind of having that first connection, what experiences are you taking there to try to build that relationship? Yeah, so I think the experiences that I, that people gave to me. So for instance, um, Sagas was always available, um, like always available. I could text him, he would respond. I could give him a call about something. He would immediately call me back or answer. He was just absolutely always available. I could pop into his office, you know, every day if I wanted to and just talk to him about anything. And again, he was just really, really available. And that's something that I've taken um, with me to my mentoring relationships with students from the undergraduate level to the graduate level. Um, I, I just ensure that I'm always available to them. Even though I'm super busy, they know that they can text me and I'll respond immediately. Um, emailing me is a whole different story because my inbox is a complete mess. Um, and and I, I used to say that, oh, it's a mess because it's October and academia. It's just always a mess now. <laughs> so I think, you know, they now know that they can text me or even DM me on Twitter, which sounds ridiculous. Um, but those are, they know that they can reach me. And I think that's been the biggest, um, I guess, aspect of my relationships that I've had as a mentee that I've tried to bring into my relationships as a mentor with folks is to be available um, and to be just honest. I think, again, you know, when my current doc student, Lauren Heinemann, who I now call a colleague because I think I learn more from her now than she does for me, but when she first got here, we were very honest about, you want to do qualitative research, you want to take deep dives into your organ organizations and do field work, this is, you know, this is what your publications will probably look like. You will make a significant impact in the field because, because of our culture and sport management, people don't have the opportunity to do field work because it just takes too long. Um, you got to go into an organization for months at a time. You got to collect lots of data. You got to go back and transcribe. Like it's just, you know, people in our field tend to um, gravitate towards the quicker projects. So we had a, a very... Um, candid conversation about, you know, you're not going to have necessarily eight publications when you come out doing this type of work, but you will fulfill a significant gap in the literature and in the field and on and on and on. 
Um, and, you know, I think that honesty was needed. I didn't want, you know, her to begin um, on this journey doing this really impactful work, but not being as competitive and having eight or whatever publications. Turns out she's a superstar and somehow was able to get, I don't know, three or four JSMs and crazy numbers doing that type of field work. So she's, she's an anomaly. She's a superstar. Um, I, I could never, I could have never done that, but I think I, I, it was really important for me to be honest with her um, and to express like, this is the culture of sport management. um, And this is what you're getting yourself into. And this is who you want to be. And you're going to have to um, figure out how to make those two things match who you want to be and the work you want to do and the current culture of our field. And I think that's so important because I even still hear from students at times that feel disenchanted at the end of the process of feeling like maybe, I don't want to say the word misled, but maybe they, now that they're further along the process, they realize things are different than maybe they expected. And, um, and I mean, that's just something that would stick out to me of kind of saying like, Hey, here's, here's the hope, but like, Hey, you know, things, this is like the ceiling potentially. And that is incredible that Lauren Hinman has had three or four really, really quality papers done like that as a yeah. student. I yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane how productive she's been able to be. Um, but maybe part of that and knowing how Lauren is, is she's like, well, I'm going to defy the odds. If you're telling me <laughs> that this is what the, the norms and the cultures are, and you're saying that if I do deep dive field work, um, is going to be difficult to, I'm going to make that work. Right. And she, you know, somehow has done that. So maybe that honesty is helpful because you'll have, you know, students who just want to defy the odds and do the impossible. But I do think that was really important to me is to be, um, a mentor that's honest and transparent, um, and also a mentor that is really available. And you kind of hinted on this now that you consider her a colleague. I mean, I'm sure there's definitely plenty of lessons learned, on your end, I mean, kind of how has your experience or feedback shaped your kind of role now as a mentor? Yeah, I think I'm not, I can't speak to the feedback. That would probably be a better question for, for Lauren or the other students that I've mentored for my years here. But I think what I've learned is that um, it's important to flip the switch at some point. It's important to be very intentional and Um, acknowledging when your mentees have evolved to a place to where um, you need to have very different conversations with them. Um, So I think it's, I can speak more to some of my undergraduate students who have gone on and gotten jobs and, you know, they still, even my master's students, they still call me sometimes when they're transitioning from one job to the other to talk about salary. And, you know, I think I should be paid more. Should I ask for more? And these are the conversations that we're having over text or over Twitter, or sometimes even, you know, we're able to catch each other on the phone, but we're having conversations where it's important for me to now ensure that they see me as a colleague so that they are, they, they feel like they can ask me questions that they might not have asked as a master's student, um, seeing themselves um, hierarchically below me, right? I'm not saying that these are real hierarchies that we have, but certainly perceived hierarchies with the faculty member versus the student. And I think having those in place and not evolving those relationships over time doesn't allow the mentees to get to a place to where they can be vulnerable and ask really difficult questions of you as a mentor. Mm, that's a kind of really good point. I, I've kind of said that there's some people in our field that are 
I want to use, well, I will like their legacies in our field that are like really well known. And I've always joked around that at some point you become a colleague and maybe you're comfortable with calling them by their first name, but there's some people I feel like that are so established that I would, I can't even fathom, like it's weird to even think about calling them by their first name, even yeah. after becoming a colleague. Yeah. And um, I do think it, obviously that can cause some challenges potentially of reaching like a colleague status, but the same sense, like if your work speaks for yourself, if you build good rapport with those people, mm -hmm. like you are like essentially are their colleague. It's something yeah. that our field has that quality. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of a person. So Dr. Mary Hums is that person for me. Like and it she is said for me. A, I can't she call said a Mary. million times <laughs> via email, Neff, call me Mary. I cannot do it. I can barely say it out loud. It's Dr. Hums and will always be Dr. Hums for me. I absolutely adore her. My, my spouse gives me such a hard time that whenever she calls that I'm I still, hey, Dr. Hums, how's it going? And yeah. It's like, it, I just can't call you Mary. It just doesn't. Yeah. Like for all I know, your first name is doctor. I just can't, I just can't say that. <laughs> I feel the same way. I refuse to do it. Like I said, I can't even say her first name out loud. It is Dr. Hums um, until the end of times for me. <laughs> oh man. I'm glad that maybe it's not just an individual thing of her being my doc advisor. Maybe she's just has that effect on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now that you're kind of pretty well established in our field, I think a lot of people look up to you, especially even I'm sure you brought this thing about sound mentors that there, there probably is a number of people in our field that view you as a sound mentor. Like what advice would you give for the people that potentially are like looking at you aspirationally in the field now that maybe you haven't connected with and then how, like what you would advise them to do kind of going forward? Yeah, I would say, you know, I hate giving advice because I feel like everything evolves so quickly. Um, I feel like the minute you give advice about how to navigate the field of sport management, our field expands, changes, evolves in some way where, you know, that advice is, is no longer very helpful. But nonetheless, um, I think the biggest piece of advice is to understand the the various cultures and microcultures that we have in sport and to try and find a place where you're going to be able to thrive. Um, I feel like sometimes folks try to fit into particular um, cultures where, for instance, you know, numbers are valued and everyone that's a part of that culture, they're all chasing the 40th, 50th, 60th publication. And depending on the type of work you do, um, that might be where you should be, right? Like you might do work where you're able to churn out articles really quickly because of the methods you use or because of your approach or because, you know, you're chasing a, a very narrow niched area and it allows for you to reproduce that way. Um, but I think where people may go wrong is when they try to do that um, at the cost of who they really are and with the work they really want to do. So I think, you know, one piece of advice is to find where you fit in. There's so many different cultures and microcultures in sport management, so many different areas of research and institutions you can go to from, you know, uh, a 3-3 three, three load where you're mostly teaching um, and doing a couple of publications a year or one publication a year, and that's absolutely satisfactory for that job, or a place where you're teaching a 0-1 or a 1-1 and you're expected to pump out a ton. I think knowing who you are and finding those places is really important to your happiness. Um, because I do believe if I could give any piece of advice is not to sacrifice your happiness for um, a job. Um, it's just, in my opinion, just not worth it. And 
because there's so many microcultures and so many different ways you can be a sport management faculty member, um, there's really no need to sacrifice your happiness. Just find where you'll be happy and, and try to secure a spot there. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. To kind of wrap us up here, just a fun question to throw off. What's the most obnoxious comment you've ever received on a paper or presentation submission? So this is a really tough question. And I think it's tough because I just don't think about the negative stuff for very long. Like I literally will get a, you know, rejection that's just absolutely terrible. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll set that aside and get back to it. I just don't hold on to that energy. Um, but I remember there was one paper where um, the authors were trying to lecture me on the use of um, gender throughout the paper. Um, Wait, so you were the reviewer on this paper? No, I was the, I was the author. Oh, okay. I'm um, so sorry. Okay. I, yeah, I mixed that up. Sorry. I was oh, the author and the gotcha. reviewer was trying to um, lecture me on my use of gender throughout the paper. And they were just absolutely wrong. They were telling me to use sex when I was really talking about gender. So they're like, hey, you use man and woman here. It should really be male and female. And that was just one the paper was all about gender, so I don't know why they would even go there. Um, but two, they were just really wrong, um, which allowed me to recognize. Um, so I, I was absolutely trying to understand gender in the paper. The paper had gender in the title. Um, the instrument had gender all throughout it. So then for them to suggest it should be sex was wrong. But nonetheless, it also allowed me to recognize that um, sometimes reviewers are just wrong, right? So don't be afraid to... Um, interrogate the feedback that you get from reviewers, not in a way that's demeaning or in a way that's not respecting their, the process of the editors and the associate editors finding the right people to review your paper, but in the aspect of having confidence in the work that you do and what you know um, and interrogating or maybe pushing back when, you know, a reviewer is telling you to use sex instead of gender when you're writing a paper about gender. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so that was that was really obnoxious and kind of annoying, but also fun because, um, again, my co-authors and I, we were like, oh, this is going to be an easy one for us. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you did respond and like submit a, or was it just a flat out rejection and they said that type? Oh, no, it was a revise and resubmit. So we were able okay. to respond to it um, and tell them why we used, and they were thankful. They were like, oh, you're right. Thank you for that explanation. Okay. Um, nice. Why we use gender over sex. Yeah. Gotcha. Because I would say I would be endlessly frustrating if you got a flat out rejection and you can't even, I guess you can respond, but it really goes to the, the yeah. editor. I don't know if the editor would ever send that on to the reviewer. I'm not really sure. Yeah. No, we were lucky that we got a revise and resubmit, um, which by the way, that was, I say, I don't hold on to negative things. I used to get um, really bothered by revise and resubmits until I were, wrote a paper with um, Matt Katz. So Dr. Matt Katz here at UMass. I, I've never seen someone more excited for a revise and resubmit. I mean, he's, that's basically an acceptance to him. He gets so excited. He jumps on the paper immediately and he gets it done like within days of getting it back. And I'm like, I thought I didn't hold on to negative news very long. This nothing phases this guy. Um, so yeah. I've always said there's kind of two different people that when you get a revise and resubmit, there's the people that want to put it off and let it stew for whether a week or even a month, depending on the review time. And then there's some people that just like, yeah, I, I want to get right back into that type of thing. 
Yeah, um, well, Matt Katz is the, this is great news. Let's knock this out and get it resubmitted tomorrow. <laughs> and like, well, that is just, that is too much for me. Like, give me a day or two. Uh, so. Oh, man. Awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Walker, thanks for joining us. This was really fun. It was some really good information. I'd never thought about sound mentors. That's something I'm, I'm going to take away from that. But we really appreciate you joining us here on the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So thanks everybody listening out there for joining in here on the state of sport management podcast. We got some new topics that are going to come out and we're going to identify some of the folks I think would be great for that. So kind of stay tuned and hopefully we'll be able to get some out here in the coming winter break and then early in the spring semester. So thanks. <laughs>